Acts. We'll be looking at Acts 8, verse 25 through verse 40. Acts 8, 25 through 40. This is the amazing account of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, Well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please, tell me, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. Because he does instruct us in so many ways, and we especially appreciate how you instruct us here through Philip's example of evangelism. Lord, we too want to be effective evangelists in the various places in life where you've put us. Lord, we want to be evangelists now and, Lord, into the future. When we're 10, 20, 30, 50 years down the road, we want to continue to be people who preach Jesus at work, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, that, that we would spread the good news of Christ and give us assistance. We need help in this. And so guide me even as I uh, seek to explain your word. pray this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the, the common objections that is raised against the sovereignty of God in salvation is if God is sovereign over the salvation of of sinners, why should we evangelize? If he is going to make sure that all of his elect do believe and come to, to faith, why should we put forth any effort? What would be the motivation? 
But I think rightly understood, the sovereignty of God is the bedrock motivation for why we should go about seeking to evangelize the lost. And if we didn't have absolute confidence that God would use our efforts, I believe we would very readily, very quickly give up. And there's many reasons for that. People don't like the gospel. It, it, it is resisted by the, the, the hard-hearted. Um, it's hard to get into gospel conversations. Um, often it takes years of gospel conversations for a person to finally be open to even listening. And if we didn't have absolute confidence that God actually works in ways that, that we don't see, we would quickly give up. And so the sovereignty of God and salvation is the reason we should have confidence and why we should boldly go forth in proclaiming Christ. And God knows how easy it is for us to get discouraged. And that's why I think he gives us this scripture in particular that we'll look at today, but all of scripture, and, and, all, and, and he permeates the scripture with statements regarding his salvation in all things. That, that nothing happens outside of his control or direction. And he also gives repeated commands that we need to follow. C.H. Spurgeon was once asked if, if he could reconcile this, these two topics of the, the doctrine of God's salvation, uh, sovereignty and salvation and our responsibility within salvation. And he said, I wouldn't try. I never try to reconcile friends. They don't need to be reconciled. And it's true. Again, the Bible portrays these two doctrines as working hand in hand, together. And this is particularly clear in the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. And I believe that the main point in this text is to encourage us by making it very clear how God is completely sovereign over everything that's happening here. And at the same time, it gives us multiple principles that we should follow, we should be responsible to follow, in regard to evangelism. This, this text is all about evangelism. It, it, uh, it's bookended by the statements of preaching the gospel. Right? That the apostles in verse 25. A, after um, the, the story with Sam, Simon Magus that we looked at last week. It says they go about preaching to many villages of the Samaritans as they're on their way back to Jerusalem. And then in verse 40, which ends this section... It speaks to the work of Philip in preaching the gospel from Azotus to Caesarea. And so the, this story of the gospel being given to the Ethiopian eunuch is bookended by proclamations of both Philip and the apostles as they go from town to town preaching Christ. So this is all about evangelism. And again, the, the focal point, though, is... This evangelistic encounter that demonstrates the sovereignty of God in bringing the gospel to Africa. And the whole encounter starts with an angel directing Philip to go to this desert road while the apostles return to Jerusalem. And as you know, angels are messengers of God. And this tells us that God is directly involved in this engagement. Like he, he directly has... Philip, go to meet this man. It's not a coincidence that he runs into the Ethiopian eunuch. It's not an accident. It is directed, sovereignly planned. So we also see, at the same time, Philip does his part. 
He's obedient. Look at verse 27. So he got up and went. He didn't say, oh, you're going to save a man. Of course, he doesn't necessarily know that that's what God's plan is, but let's say he did. He didn't say, well, just save him. No, he's obedient. He goes up and meets this Ethiopian. Philip's obedience here is significant because it shows us that evangelism requires effort. And it's not, a, it's not obvious from the a cursory reading of the text, but Philip had to travel approximately 60 miles through the desert to reach this man. And think about that, walking 60 miles through the desert. It's going to be hot today. You can imagine what it was like then. 60 miles. Now, God could have easily just picked up Philip and dropped him right in the course of this eunuch. And he will sweep Philip away, we see at the end of the text. So if he can do it at the end, why not do it at the beginning? And I think that's the point. He wants Philip to participate, to put forth effort. And in his effort, he will be blessed. So God being sovereign in evangelism doesn't discount the fact that he uses means. God always uses means to bring about his purposes. And the means in evangelism that he desires to use is us. He wants us to have the joy in participating in being able to share the best news possible. He wants us to see the the freedom that comes when a person trusts in Christ and the transformation that is real. It's miraculous. It is supernatural. Anytime a person truly believes and, and repents and turns to follow Christ. And he wants us to be able to participate. Of course, all evangelism is done in God's power, but he invites us in and he requires that we participate in us. He commands us to. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says, I works harder than any of them, comparing himself to the other apostles. He says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Paul worked hard, harder than anybody else in evangelism. And yet he realizes even in that, it was God's power in him. And effective evangelism will take work. It will take labor. It will cost us. And it, it's arrogant and presumptuous to just assume that God is going to save people without us putting forth any effort at all. That's just laziness. And so it's worth considering, what are you practically doing to seek to reach the unbelievers in your life? Your coworkers, your your children, extended family members, those people you know that don't know the Lord, what are you practically doing? We need to do more than pray. We must pray. If we're not praying, we also shouldn't expect God to change anybody's heart. We must pray. But we need to do more than pray. We need to be seeking open doors, knocking on those doors, so to speak. And so what, what can you be doing to help build trust in your relationships with unbelievers so that they, they would want your advice, they'd want your counsel, they'd want your help? And the person that God chooses to rescue here, through Philip's effort, we're, we're told, is an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, it was common practice in ancient times for male officials who were serving in the royal court, they were serving uh, amidst female royalty, that they would be castrated. 
And as you would imagine, this was not something they volunteered for. Uh, it was forced surgery. And we're told that this eunuch was a court official of Candace, Queen of the Ethiopians. And Candace is not a first name, it's actually a title. It was uh, similar to uh, Pharaoh in Egypt, or Abimelech, or Caesar in Rome. It was a title that was given, not actually a name. And I should also add that Ethiopia at this time refers to every area south of Egypt in East Africa. So it's not just the small Ethiopia that we know today, which isn't all that small, but it's actually covering all of East Africa south of Egypt, which is a massive territory. So this is a significant person he's encountering. And we're told that this man's responsibility was to take charge of the queen's treasure. And that treasure encompassed, of course, that whole area. And this would explain how he has access to this scroll of Isaiah that he's reading. Literature was not cheap, especially religious scrolls in foreign tongues. It was, this would have been a very rare thing for people to have indeed. Um, it's a, the roughly equivalent cost of a, um, a luxury sports car would today. So communities could own one, they could buy one, people could pool their money and collect these religious scrolls, but it took time to copy and write, time to write, and so they're very expensive. Um, and so this was a treasure, this was a part of the queen's treasure that he was reading. And we can't miss the providential circumstances here. This man had been appointed to serve in the queen's court, which, of course, required that he would be castrated. But this cost allowed him to be given access to one of the most precious treasures in all the world. In fact, I'd argue the most precious treasure. And consider this fact as well, that of all the Old Testament scriptures that he had selected to read on his journey, he selects Isaiah. Now, God knows what this man is reading. And that's why he sends Philip. And the words here are noteworthy. Look at verse 29. It says, Then the Spirit said to Philip, Go up and join this chariot. That, that verb there, trans, translated join, actually means to glue or cement. It's a very strong word. God's telling Philip, the Spirit's telling Philip, glue yourself to this man. Get his attention. Uh, He's not telling him to be obnoxious. He's saying, stick to him. And I think the words are not incidental. And I believe they're selected here to instruct us that that we need to stick to people in evangelism. We need to persevere in our evangelism. We shouldn't just give casual attempts in seeking to reach our friends. An example of this... One of our missionaries has been working for 10 years to bring the gospel to an unreached people group that has no known believers. And for the past five years or so, myself and one of my sons usually um, takes part in in a weekly Zoom prayer meeting. We pray for 45 minutes to an hour with a number of people around the country praying for this with this missionary for this unreached people group. And just two weeks ago. Our missionary said that he'd heard that a young lady whom they had been sharing with regularly, actually for years, was challenged by some unbelieving friends while attending a music festival. She, she says this, One of the ladies said to her, You need to not be gray about your faith. 
Tell us what's happening. I stood up and I said to them, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ now. In the past, you thought I was a Christian because I was following my husband. And his husband's from an ethnic group that is predominantly Christian. Though it's comprised largely of non-believers. She said, but now I'm a Christian because I'm following the Bible. No one did this to me. No one forced me. I did this because it's the true way. This, this young lady is, as far as we can tell, the very first Christian among this whole people group. After a decade of prayer and of conversations in ministry, this, this missionary family could have easily given up after not seeing any fruit over two or three years and having to go through all the challenges. If you're familiar with them, you know they've been many. And yet they didn't, and now they're just starting to see fruit of their labor. And likewise, Philip does what the Spirit calls him to do. He doesn't give up. He glues himself to the chariot, and he hears the man reading outside, reading out loud from the, the prophet Isaiah. And this brings us to the third principle of evangelism. Effective evangelist, evangelism starts with helping people. Sorry, this, the map here is showing that where, oops, where Philip had to, uh, I'm going the wrong way. Sorry, Philip had to travel. It's down here, uh, that where the green arrow starts, that's Gaza. That's where he's going to. You see Judea at the top. That's where Philip started. So he's got to travel all this way down here, 60 miles through the desert in order to reach this man. So it's a lengthy distance. Let's look at the third principle. Effective evangelism starts with helping people. And this is what I would call a, a wide open door for evangelism. It's as wide open as you're ever going to see. And even though this is just a clear wide open door that's presented to Philip, note how wisely Philip approaches the conversation. He's not rude. He's not condescending. He offers help. He invades this man's space with an offer to sincerely help him. Now, now people uh, typically don't appreciate being interrupted. People don't appreciate having their space invaded. But if you're doing so because it's clear that you're trying to help them, they usually don't mind at all. And this is clear in this case. But again, if, if a person thinks you're trying to manipulate them or trick them or scold them, point out their faults or use them any sort of way, if that's what they're picking up on and the way you're talking with them, they're going to be, the walls are going to go up and they're not going to want to talk to you and, and you quench the gospel opportunity before it even starts. And I use these words, manipulate, trick, scold, use, because I think this is often how unbelievers feel. When we start talking with them, they feel like a project. They, they assume you're just doing your spiritual duty, and they're just, they're just the next project that you're going to be working on. Or they just feel like you're just pointing out their faults and, and condemning them just like every other person that points out their failures. And so instead, we need to think of evangelism as, as, in terms of how can I help this person. Every single person knows, needs help. Even if they don't know it. You know they need help if they don't know Christ. And so the, the question is, how can you help them see that they need that kind of help? And one of the best ways is to show that you really want to help them 
in the ways that they know they need help. Now, it just so happens in this case, the man needs help in precisely the way Philip has come to bring help. And Philip is, of course, eager to share with him the meaning of Isaiah 53. So again, for us, try to figure out what needs a person might have. This might take getting to know them, which is going to take asking lots of questions. And that may take time. It may, it may take the, more than one encounter. In fact, again, if you look at this, how missionaries do their work, it often doesn't happen in just one encounter. It takes years. And so stick with it. Get to know them. Try to find out what their needs are. And then... Begin to ask questions and seek for, for a means of directing the conversation back to their ultimate need for Christ. Again, the goal is not just to share the gospel, but to help people see their need of the gospel and to embrace the gospel. I think so often people just think evangelism is just going out and proclaiming, as if the goal was just to make noise. It's not. Any more than it is to, to be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal within the church. We need to be loving people. In order for people to, to feel loved, you, they need to see that you're trying to help them. Now, it's noteworthy how Philip reacts here. When Philip asks, do you understand your reading? Notice the eunuch recognizing, recognizes that Philip isn't mocking him. He's not condescending to him in this question. He knows that Philip's trying to help. And that's why he invites him up into his chariot. If this official from a royal court thought Philip was trying to make him out to be an idiot and being dependent upon him, he would have left him in the dust. But he can tell by Philip's tone, by his demeanor, he wants to help. So he invites him up. And says to Philip in verse 31, well, how could I? How could I understand what I'm reading unless someone guides me? Now, his response to Philip is noteworthy because it's remarkably close to what Paul says in Romans 10 regarding evangelism. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, this brings us to the fourth point. Effective evangelism is rooted in Scripture. The Unix words are reminded that, that, that people need us to explain what the Bible teaches. Like, we're not mystics. Christians aren't mystics. We believe the Bible needs to be interpreted rightly. It needs to be explained clearly. And this means that in order for us to be effective evangelists, we need to know the Bible too. And people are going to ask questions challenging questions and we need to give semi-competent answers like we we shouldn't we, we shouldn't give responses that, that kind of show that we're relatively new, uh, immature giving preschool answers or just coined phrases but they can tell that we know what we're talking about that we're credible that we're trustworthy okay that means we need to be studying the bible even before we begin to engage in these evangelistic conversations. Not just going to church on Sundays, but daily in the Word, studying it and seeking to apply it. And Philip is a man who's ready to respond to the eunuch's questions. 
And the providence of God is evident enough in that the, the fact that the, that the eunuch was reading the scroll of Isaiah. But notice the very portion of Isaiah that the eunuch chooses to read happens to be the clearest gospel text in all of the Old Testament. Not an accident. But we should note also there's something in this very text that would be of particular interest to the man that's reading it. This brings us to the fifth point. Effective evangelism recognizes God's sovereignty over suffering. Notice that verse 33, how it describes the Messiah. That word translated generation, it actually refers to family lineage. The point is that the Messiah didn't have any descendants. He didn't have any children because he was cut off before that opportunity arose. He was killed. And this same text that both clearly explains the work of the Messiah also communicates to this man that God is sovereign over unjust afflictions. God is going to use the Messiah's injustice the injustice that he had to go through in order to bring salvation to his people. Just like he's going to use the injustice that the eunuch faced, the loss of opportunity to have children in order for the eunuch to bring the gospel of salvation to his people. It wasn't an accident that the man was made a eunuch. Any more than that the Son of God had to suffer and die on a cross. Brothers and sisters, God uses sin. God uses suffering to bring about His purposes. And often we don't see it. We can't connect the dots because we're not God. But we need to recognize that. And, and even here, this, this, because this man was a eunuch, he was put in a position not only to have access to the scriptures that could bring salvation, but he had access to come to Jerusalem and then inter, interact with one of the leaders of the Christian church to understand this text. None of that was by accident. None of it would have happened if he hadn't been a eunuch. And likewise, we need to take courage in this. You, Anybody you talk to has had to go through significant suffering. Now, they may not admit it. They might not say it. Especially if they don't trust you, they're not going to open up. But they have in some way or other. And, and, we, and we need to be able to stand confident that that's not, a, that's not a hindrance to the gospel. Because the means of salvation was unjust suffering. God uses suffering to accomplish His purposes. And we need to be able to help people see that. Some of you might recall how Sabina Vernbrand's family was killed, murdered by a Nazi named Barilla. And years later, after that murder, that, that very same man moved into the apartment complex, the same apartment complex where the Vernbrands lived. And when Richard Vernbrand, Sabina's husband, heard who it was who lived near him, he invited him to his home. And he began to open up the scriptures and explain to him his, his need for Christ. Richard recognized that it was no coincidence that God brought this man, the murderer of his wife's family, into his apartment complex. 
and God used the evil that that man did to bridge a gap so that he could clearly explain the real forgiveness that's offered by Christ, even as his wife came and embraced this man as a brother in Christ and received his forgiveness. There's more here we need to take notice of. In verse 35, it says that Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he preached Jesus to him, which shows us that effective evangelism requires words. You can read the next one up, Dan. It's not coming up. It requires words. Now, now to say that Philip opened his mouth might sound a bit redundant, but it communicates to us two things. First, it tells us that you do, in fact, have to use words when you're sharing the gospel. Right? You've probably heard the quote, go into all the world and preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. And that quote is often attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. But the reality is, St. Francis never said such a thing. St. Francis himself was quite a preacher. The closest quote the scholars could find from Francis that we come to this is his rule of 1221 from chapter uh, 12, where he instructs his followers regarding preaching. He says this, No brother should preach contrary to the form and regulations of the Holy Church, nor unless he has been permitted by his minister. All the friars should preach by their deeds. Now what he's saying here isn't don't use words. He's saying make sure you practice what you preach, and that's clear in the context. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't undermine what you're telling people by the way that you live. So he's not saying don't use words. He's saying make sure your actions line up with your words. The the gospel is inherently verbal. We need to use words if people are going to understand it. And that's what we see Philip doing here. But the phrase that he opened his mouth is also significant in this regard. Because it seems to set in contrast what Philip is doing with what the Lamb of God did in Isaiah 53. Whereas the Lamb of God was silent before his shears, did not open his mouth. Philip does open his mouth. Jesus was silent when he came to die because he came to die. He wasn't seeking to justify himself. He was submitting himself to the Father's plan. And now that his great work had been accomplished, now, therefore, is the time to proclaim it. Now is not the time to be silent. Now is the time to open the mouth to proclaim what Christ did. And that's what Philip, of course, is doing. He shares this great news and he begins with Isaiah 53. Now, we know that he preached more than Isaiah 53 because it says, first of all, beginning with with this scripture, he explained, he preached Christ to him. But it also, we know he, he explained more than the scripture because of how the eunuch responds in the next verse, verse 36. It says, they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? Now, there's nothing about baptism in Isaiah 53, which tells us that Philip and he had been talking about baptism. And the reason being is because baptism was the sign that a person was ready to commit their life to Christ. So effective evangelism also calls for a response. Today, Christians are often encouraged to... uh, express their desire to follow Christ by praying a prayer, they walk an aisle, they raise their hand, every eye closed, every head bowed, right? There's some sort of 
physical thing that they do in order to demonstrate their desire to honor Christ. Well, biblically, the way a person showed they were ready to commit their life to Christ is they got baptized. That's what we see happening in the early church. And that's clearly what Philip communicated to this Ethiopian eunuch when he shared the gospel. That's why the eunuch says, there's water, let me get baptized. So the act of baptism doesn't save a person any more than reciting marriage vows makes a person pregnant. It's merely an external act that signifies that we are united with Christ. We want to unite with Christ in his death and resurrection. And it's the first command that a Christian is called to obey. And that's, of course, why Philip brings up the issue in his conversation with the eunuch. Now, in your versions, verse 37 is probably in brackets, or it's got an asterisk next to it. Um, And this is because the oldest manuscripts, the best manuscripts that we have available, don't have this verse included in them. And so it was almost certainly added later. And, And probably because the person... One of the scribes wanted to emphasize that baptism doesn't save a person. It's just an expression of salvation. So he includes this kind of formula of faith, so to speak, within the text. Quite possibly when a, when a person in the early church got baptized, they said they believed in Christ with all their heart and that they believed that he was the Son of God. So they throw this in here just so that people don't misunderstand the purpose of baptism. That it doesn't save, it just signifies salvation. So we don't precisely know what Philip said in response, but we do know that he baptized him. Now again, we can't miss the providential circumstances here. Where are they? They're in the desert. They're on a desert road. Deserts are known for not having water. And lo and behold... As they're going along, talking in their conversation about baptism, they look off to the right or to the left, and there is water. And not just a little bit of water, because there's enough water for them to actually go down into it in order to get baptized. Because it says they came up out of the water in verse 39. Philip isn't sprinkling him. He's submerging him in the water. So this is providential. Not accidental. It says, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him. (laughs) So there's some clear providence as well. He was there, and now he's gone. But the eunuch responds by going on his way rejoicing. Verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. This brings us to our last principle here. Effective evangelism isn't finished. Because even after such a a powerful, remarkable experience that clearly showed that God was working in his preaching, in his obedience, a man who had some interest in Christ clearly because he was reading Isaiah, some interest in, in, in Judaism, in the Bible, yet clearly God was at work in this man's heart. And, and what a successful story. He could have easily just gone home, gone to bed, and said, I've done my part. And I'm not even an apostle. Let's leave it to the guys who were sent by Christ. Let's leave it to the twelve. He doesn't. When he finds himself as Azotus, 
says he continues to preach all the way to Caesarea, just as the apostles, when they returned from Samaria, preached all the way back to Jerusalem in every town they came to. Philip also, all the way back to Caesarea, he's preaching. So that's going all the way up the north coast. So his travels make him go in a big triangle around their land of Israel. And I think it's noteworthy that years later, when the Apostle Paul chose to visit Caesarea, he actually came to visit Philip. And it's noteworthy what Philip is called in Acts 21.8. It says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Luke identifies him as well as probably Paul himself, as the evangelist. Because Philip had committed his life to sharing the good news, not just with one man, but with every person he had access to. His life was defined by evangelism, which is probably what made him effective. Which suggests that if he was effective, and we want to be effective, we should seek to learn from him. To learn from his example in the principles that he exhibits to us in this passage. Recognizing that evangelism is going to require effort. It's going to require work. It's going to require cost. It's going to require perseverance. We can't just give up after the first no. After the first negative reaction. After the first time you're offended or your feelings are hurt. Or you get assaulted. We're going to have to persevere. We need to remember it starts with helping people. The goal is not to do our spiritual duty. It's to help a person see what they ultimately need help in. It's rooted in Scripture. And it means we need to be studying the Scriptures. Not just regarding gospel text, but every text. So that we can answer questions appropriately. Show that we're competent. It recognizes God's sovereignty over suffering. Over our own suffering. And over the suffering of those that we're going to talk to. That that, that we should be able to answer why a good God allows suffering. It's going to require words. Right? Some people are talkers. And sharing the gospel with friends or with strangers is easy. They enjoy it. Others, like most of us, are introverted. And we would rather just show by our example. But evangelism requires words. We need to open our mouth, just like Philip did. But it also calls for a response. As we're engaging them, we need to help them see there needs to be repentance. There needs to be a committed expression, a demonstration that they want to turn from their sins and follow Christ. And of course, the way to do that is to be baptized. You can certainly pray with them then and there to ask the Lord to change their heart, but then direct them to a church where they can get baptized to show the church they're ready to follow Christ. And eighthly, eighthly, we need to remember evangelism is never finished. It's not going to be finished until the Lord in Christ, the Lord Christ himself, stands upon the earth and establishes his kingdom here. But we should also be encouraged recognizing that God is sovereign over all of this. He is sovereignly at work saving his people from their sins. And he uses people as well to to be the means of bringing this salvation to people. God's going to make certain that every single person he has elected gets saved. 
We know this because of Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. And we need, to, we need to take great comfort in knowing this. Nobody that should be saved is going to be lost. All will come to salvation. And we shall take comfort knowing that, be, that in this because rarely are we going to see the effects of our efforts in ministry. Very rarely are you going to be able to see the fruit that your labors produce. And this is especially the case in evangelism. And because of that, it's going to be easy to give up. It's going to be easy to quit. Quit trying to help people understand their need for Christ. It's easy to grow discouraged, and we will grow discouraged if we just focus upon what our eyes see. But if we take in mind that the sovereign God of the universe is using us as a means to reach people, and he does use us in ways that we don't see. He's at work in ways that we aren't aware of. Just like he was at work in this eunuch's life way before he even met Philip. If we recognize that, we will be confident that in our labors we will eventually bear fruit. Right? Galatians 6, nine says, And let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap. If we do not give up, we will reap if we don't give up. And we shouldn't give up if we know that God uses exactly what we're trying to do. He's at work in powerful ways to accomplish his purposes, even if it's not evident to us. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Let's pray. Father, help us to be steadfast and immovable and abounding in joy in the work of evangelism. Father, help us to, to see what we need to do, how we need to change internally, externally, so we would be a church of evangelists. Evangelists who truly love people. Who aren't trying to show off. Who aren't trying to just prove that we're right. But who would give everything we have to see people come to know you. And Lord, help us to see if there's things we need to give up. What things are hindering us from being more effective in reaching the lost around us. Lord, even helping us as a church to know what things we might need to do differently. We want to be fruitful. And we know to be fruitful, we need to be faithful. And so we ask for grace and direction as we seek to be the people you've called us to be. We pray this in Christ's name.